Welcome to the first episode of Propaganda. This podcast explores the intersections of transformative justice and pop culture. We will be talking in general about the existence of domestic, sexual, and state violence and our experiences with these forms of violence. Throughout this season, and in this episode in particular, we will be talking about these themes and our own survivorship. We will not be talking in high levels of detail about specific experiences of violence. We invite everyone to use this information to make choices about what is right for you. You will hear us use terms such as transformative justice, TJ, and CSA. We want this conversation to be available both to folks who have never heard these terms before and to those of us who might use these words every day. While there is no one definition of transformative justice, we understand transformative justice as working to address issues of violence and harm outside of harmful state systems, such as cops, prisons, and family policing systems. You will hear us use the acronym TJ throughout this episode. When you do, know we are referring to transformative justice. You will also hear us use the acronym CSA. CSA is an acronym for child sexual abuse. This first season of the podcast is a labor of love. You will hear the evolution of our learning throughout the season, including watching real time while we build our sound engineering and editing skills. If you're one of those people who really care about audio quality and find the first few episodes with room to grow, we ask that you stick with it. The audio quality improves greatly after episode three. Now on to the episode. I love that our meeting, it was made to happen by a mutual friend and that it's been really lovely to get to know you. We're like new friends doing this project and that's also fun. I feel like we get to know each other as we go through this thing. My name is Tajmika Torok. I am based in Lansing, Michigan. I'm a gardener. I am the parent of gender expansive kids. Love people and things that make me laugh. In my family, we say often that if people don't laugh at our jokes, that we think there's something wrong with them. We think we're super funny. You know, that's how we make relationships. Did you laugh at my joke? I don't trust people that don't like dogs and that don't laugh enough. I just want to enjoy my time. I already do work that's challenging. I need the rest of the time to be joyful. I am a survivor of child sexual abuse that does work to try to intervene on acts of violence while not causing more violence in the world. The side of practice that I have is the Firecracker Foundation. I'm a founding co-director of that organization. Been around for 10 years and started as a space where I really thought I was going to be like a lady who lunch. I thought I was going to like raise $6,000, pay for some kids therapy that year and like go find a real job. (laughs) 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 Jokes on me, this turned into my real job. Now we, we just transitioned to becoming a healing justice side of practice and have officially or reintroduced ourselves to our community. And we do all kinds of things. We provide um, mental health care and embodied movement. We have Title IX advocacy for youth that experience gender-based violence. 
We have a full spectrum doula program for BIPOC birthing people. Yeah. And we're also exploring alternative forms of justice, like restorative justice and transformative justice with our communities. I'm really proud of the work that we do, even if it is really challenging. But it's also this really beautiful, creative, build the future world stuff that I have a hard time not doing. And I think about that a lot because I'm like, I could do a lot of things and I keep fucking coming back to this work. Do I love to suffer? You know, being a person who is sending something forward that's better than what we are currently living in, that I think is the piece that keeps me coming back to the work. Well, that's so beautiful. I love getting to hear all of that. Uh, My name is Shannon Perez Darby. I'm a queer person who spends lots of time in queer community thinking about queer folks and queer and trans community. I'm a dancer. Most of the things that bring me the most joy in my time and my week is when I dance. I also like to garden. It's been so nice to get to talk gardening with you as well. (laughs) I am a survivor of domestic violence. I am also a lover of particularly TV and TikTok. I (laughs) described that like probably 40% of the joy I get every week is specifically from TikTok. I like curate TikToks for people as part of a friend service that I offer where I'm like, listen, let me curate some TikToks. Let me help you get your feet set up. Let me show you the joy that is possible in TikTok. I am lucky to be in a place in my life where I get to do a lot of My paid work are things that really bring me joy and that I have a lot of choice over. And that is really amazing. The hard part is that I have no idea how to talk about it because I don't actually have one specific job. I have Mm -hmm. four kind of jobs. So one is that I'm an activist in residence with Just Beginnings Collaborative, working on utilizing transformative justice principles and childhood sexual abuse and working specifically on mandatory reporting harm reduction. And then I do a lot of work helping folks in social justice movements and organizations and community spaces navigate conflict, navigate what it is to be in right relationship with each other. It's really hard to be a person with other people. So hard. Really hard. It's really hard. And so we come up with really predictable challenges over and over again. And so trying to support people with shared values to be like, all right, what's our plan? How are we going to make this work? my father was the person who caused my harm and he passed away when I was eight. And ever since his death and grappling with the impact of the abuse that I experienced and what could have been different, the question I have always asked is like, if my father didn't have to risk violence at the hands of the state or violence at the hands of the community, would he have asked for help? And at what point? And that also goes to everybody around him because there were more people that knew things. They didn't know everything, but there were definitely behaviors of concern long before I was born and long before I ever disclosed what happened to me. And I feel like the answer to that question is also the answer to why people don't also intervene, 
right? Because they're afraid that if they intervene, they're going to put a black man in prison or they're going to cause him harm in a world that's already causing him intense amounts of violence and harm. I remember or as an organization, we were funded also by Just Beginning Collaborative and we were in a cohort for four years. Um, and one of our cohort members was our mutual friend, um, Mia Mingus. I have just been in a process of intense like relationship building, like me as a dear friend of mine, but also when I started talking to Mia and with others about TJ, it became clear to me that this is not the answer, but it is a potential answer to those questions that have just been deeply embedded in my soul as well as not just the question of the abuse I experienced, but also the question of the violence my people experienced in enslavement and during the civil rights era, during Jim Crow, you know, the Black man's coin purse it, with being enlisted in the military as a way to their financial needs and secure their financial future. Like there's so many points of harm that I feel like CJ is, set up to respond to and address in ways that other forms of what we call justice do not. So I just started following it because I was like, maybe there's an answer here. And even if the answer doesn't solve my problem, my history, my the harm that happened to me, how can I be a part of creating spaces of intervention for other children and families long before anything happens to them? Or if something has already happened, to build their community around them, to help support what they need versus what the state says is needed, and to really just build that community of care. Like, how do we care for one another when harm happens, when we cause harm, when we want to be, like you said earlier, in right relationship with one another? And so that's been the practice. Uh, we have been building community around TJ principles, and now we're starting to shift towards inviting other people into that. Literally, the name of you know Mia's org is Soil, the TJ project, right? But like we have been, we've been telling the soil and like putting good things into the soil, and really focused on our values, and really having in-depth conversations that we're now starting to like. Okay, I think we're ready to plant some seeds and see what happens. Well, a very quick aside that I'm going to call a Mia Mingus Dush Fest. It is true that Mia brought us together. thing that I want to say about like my love for Mia is the way that she brings joy and connection. As every time I talk to Mia, I like laugh so much. And I will say that that is not true across all the transformative justice connections that I have. A lot of the times, because we're talking about a lot about violence and abuse, it can get very serious or sometimes it can get very like stoic. Whenever I'm in relationship with Mia, we're just laughing and just mm -hmm. have the most fun. Um, yeah. And I just love that about her and so appreciate her connecting us because I'm having lots of fun. I'm having the same experience with you, which is lots yeah. of joyfulness. Yeah, I love that. You know, if we're going to gush fest on Mia, I just want to co-sign. I mean, I've already said that I love to laugh. I definitely have lots of joyful moments with Mia. And I just feel like that is such an amazing model for the way that we create TJ in the world, right? And I know I said the work is hard and it is, but like I often will be in a moment where something really incredibly transformative has happened, whether it's with a client or a community member. And I just am bearing witness to something that's amazing. 
the reason they're there, having that transformative moment is not something we want to celebrate, right? Like that's not great. And also I really feel like some days I'm on like this tightrope between the worst things that have ever happened to people in their life and like the most amazing, transformative, healing, crazy, magical things that happen in their life in the middle of like all of those feelings and all of those experiences. And I'm like, I wish people could see how beautiful these moments are, even in the midst of all the hard things that are happening, there is joy and there is this lightness that happens. It's just not all the time, which is life, right? First of all, I would never let a camera follow me everywhere. Like that's never a thing that's ever going to happen. Same. I don't think my reputation, nothing would survive. Absolutely not. Immediately, no. Immediately, no. However, it's in those moments that I wish that people could be there with me because I think that when folks think about TJ, when they think about abolition, when they think about child sexual abuse and healing, there is like this dark shroud and there's not a lot of room for nuance in that way that people think about it, uh, which I think also contributes to the reasons why we don't talk about it. So I'm glad we're even talking about the fact that these things can be joyful and that people that we're connected to doing this work like Mia are also so joyful and also garden because that's all I'm doing is talking to me about gardening too. I like patterns where I'm like, okay, I notice the people I like, like, like TV, like gardening, like dancing. I'm like, okay. Just good to know who my people are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just absolutely to what you're saying. I, I've been saying this thing where I've had a lot of opportunities to make mistakes and to mess up mm-hmm. over these last five or six years of my life, particularly. I've just mm-hmm. made a higher than average number of mistakes. Having these situations that have been very, very painful that have also led to some of the like deepest joy and deepest love and deepest connection in my mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. And I had a situation where I did something that hurt my partner deeply mm-hmm. in the course of repairing that and the course of mm-hmm. attending that together. I also had this experience where I got to feel a true depth. I really feel what it was to also be unconditionally loved, to, to have this feeling of, oh, this person loves me and there's actually nothing I could do that would make that this person not care for me. And I could actually feel yeah. that through the course of having made a mistake, having done something that was hurtful to him. And having repaired it from that repair was also deep connection. Both was true. It was painfully miserable to like harm him. And Mm -hmm. it was also deeply connective to repair and then feel what it was to be be in connection still Mm -hmm. after having done something that was harmful to him. Yeah. Mia often says that conflict is a site for building trust. And even when she first said it to me, I was like, girl, stop. Nobody likes conflict, right? Like no one wakes up in the morning and is like, ooh, I can't wait to build trust. But then when you when you do move into that practice of recognizing that conflict is not a thing to hide from because it is a site where trust can be built, and then you're able to go through something where you cause harm and you are able to repair that relationship and really show up as someone who can sit with not being the rightest person in the room in the moment, which is really hard for lots of people, including me, you know, like, what do you mean? I'm not, I'm sorry. I'm you the protagonist in my own life. Like right. I write all the time. Turns I'm out the hero of the story, just so you know, but also it's made me a much better parent because the most important and precious feedback 
that I get is from my children, is from my partner, is, you know what I mean? It's from my closest friends because they truly know me and can extend that unconditional love because they do want to be in relationship with me. Having that practice shared with me and leaning into it has really strengthened the bonds that I have with my children because I'm able to say I fucked up um, and that was not okay. I forgot to do the thing that I said I was going to do. It doesn't have to be a big thing. Just being able to admit that I'm not always the person that I wished I was in that yeah. moment. And it doesn't make me a terrible person. It just makes me a human who is not going to do all the things right all the time. My journey in transformative justice was really answering the question, what would have been possible for me? I was in my early 20s. I was in a relationship with another queer, mixed, light-skinned, Latino, Mexican. A lot of things happened in that relationship. I often call it my wackadoo relationship because it is confusing to understand how to be in relationship to it. You know, I wouldn't call it abusive for a long time. Mm -hmm. And it was really only through working with LGBT survivors of domestic violence and hearing my own story back to me all the time. And then for them being like, wow, that's a beaut. That's a pattern of power and control where your world got smaller and that person was messing with you. And mm. only through that experience of being like, oh, that's literally describing exactly my experience. Was yeah. I able to be like, all right, I can make some math that makes sense there. But it was mm. very hard to tolerate. I knew it was bad news. I knew it reorganized my life. I knew it was really crushing. I knew I left the state because I didn't know what else to do and mm -hmm. really toxic and hard situation that was there. Mm -hmm. It had deep impact to my life. Mm -hmm. I reorganized my life because of that. We were queer folks of color in a small community and there was no not dealing with each other. There wasn't a world where mm -hmm. I was going to be in that community and not have to be in some kind of relationship with that person. And we were not able to be in any kind of safe and healthy relationship with each other, even a coexisting inside community kind of relationship, mm -hmm. I couldn't figure it out. We both were volunteers for the queer anti-violence program. I reached mm -hmm. out to folks. I was never going to call the cops on that person. One of the things that happened was that he stopped me. He came into my work regularly in harassing ways. After being asked several times not to do that, people would often say like, are you going to call the cops? I'm not going to call the cops on this trans person of color. I'm not going to do it for mm -hmm. a lot of reasons. How is that going to help me? I don't want that. I just want yeah. him to leave me alone. And so I tried a lot of things. And honestly, they went okay. I moved to Seattle. That was the resolution to that situation. A lot of my transformative justice work has been answering the question, what would have been possible for 20-something-year-old me? What are the skills? What are the contexts? What are the resources? How do our communities need to be organized? How does our society need to be organized? How does like mm -hmm. infrastructure need? How does my personal skill and role in that? That is really how I found my way to transformative justice. Working at a LGBTQ domestic violence program for 10 years, really mm -hmm. getting to talk to literally thousands of queer and trans survivors of domestic violence, talking with a fair amount of people who were being abusive, who would call and reach out for resource or support or yeah. call for all sorts of reasons and seeing what wasn't working and then trying to get creative, trying to vision about, okay, like what's our plan? And how are we mm -hmm. going to be in, in, in good, safe relationship with each other? Yeah. 
I'm really sorry that you didn't have what you needed in order to do the thing that needed to happen. You know, it's one thing to not feel safe, but it's another thing to have uproot yourself in order to seek safety. Whether it's common or not, it's terrible. I hate change. I'm not really good at change. Everybody at the office knows and cracks jokes like if the couch is moved to happen inch, I notice. You know what I mean? I also hate change. My goal is do the things I like for as long as possible. I would hang out with the exact same people. I would probably work at the exact same place. If that was possible to live that way, I would be very happy just doing the same thing forever. Exactly. While in a transition in my life, a friend of mine and I have been joking about the crab in Moana and how fancy his shell was. We're both actually in new shells right now. So we're Mm. talking about what pictures we're hanging up in our new shell and like, how are we... How are we redesigning this uh, metaphorical new home? Yeah, I don't like change, but now I'm crawled out. I'm moving into a new cell and trying to find ways to celebrate it because it's not easy. It's so hard to make those choices. I know so many survivors that will say, I just want it to stop. I don't want to call the police. I don't want to cause more harm or exacerbate the harm because I've asked for help. There's solutions, but none of them are necessarily responsive to those very specific needs and concerns. This feels very similar to what I'm saying about moving something forward that makes life better in ways that you didn't have for other people. It's really powerful and profound. Let's talk about pop culture. I've always been a TV watcher, a TV lover since I was a kid. A little known story is that my siblings and I grounded um, the Indiana Jones trilogy. I think that was when I was like in middle school. We would wake up in the morning and watch all three of them every day. So much so that we've joked that we're going to get a tattoo that just says, I hate snakes. Our parents literally took the movies away from us. We felt the same way about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. When I first met and moved in with my husband, we had arguments about how to take care of the house, like cleaning stuff, right? Because the way that we grew up cleaning is my mom would turn on like Lifetime TV and her ironing board would be right in the living room. And I would sit under the ironing board, right? And either I was like folding clothes, doing something stationary, and then the commercial would come on. And then we would go to the room that we were still cleaning. When I tell you that this is basically how I clean today, I just want you to know, there's not commercials anymore, so I have to do it at transition moments. But I just want you to know that you've seen into my soul and looked into my private home. My like only capable of folding laundry in front of the TV. Yeah. Like, I cannot fold laundry if the TV's not on. Those things are inextricably no. linked for me. No, and if not, then I have have my phone and then I fold a pair of pants and I go to the next TikTok and I fold a t-shirt and I no. go to the next TikTok and I You see it into my soul. No. Hey, this is just how we clean in my family. Like there is no you just go into the kitchen and you just clean the kitchen. I will say though, my partner does clean like that and it has been a revelation. We've been living together eleven years and it has been fascinating to learn he will take 15 minutes and he'll clean the kitchen every day um or after every meal or after and he just he sits or he has two hours on saturday where he cleans the entire house and it is fascinating to watch he has a totally different relationship to it than me he's the same way he starts a project and he just finishes it 
God bless him. He has figured out that all I need when I'm cleaning is someone standing at the doorway to carry things out of the room because I won't take it. I'll put it, <laughs> I'll put it outside and it'll sit there for three weeks, right? Or I'll pull weeds and it'll be a pile. And he's figured out how to support my brain in our household, which has worked out well. That's yeah, very special. I mean, TV has just been so important in so many different ways in terms of how I build relationships with my siblings. We still, when I see my sister this week, we will probably sit on the couch and watch Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. We'll probably still watch Indiana Jones, even though we know the movie is terrible. That was also the first time I ever saw a CSA survivor. It was the first time I ever saw The Color Purple, The Women of Brewster's Plays, Lady Sings the Blues about Billie Holiday. Like it really created the way that I understood what had happened to me, that there's like a diversity of stories. I didn't know. I didn't know how bad what I experienced was in relationship to other people because I didn't have a survivor community, right? I didn't know anybody. It was just a 12-year-old kid who probably shouldn't have been watching The Color Purple. This is like I watched like Showgirls too young. I don't know what happened that I was watching that. If it was my job to be tracking that as an adult, I would not have let my young self do that. But that's still what happened. It was a different time, folks. It was a latchkey kid, okay? Absolutely. Actually, the latchkey kid is a deep part of my relationship to TV, which is that I came home. I had a period of time Mm -hmm. by myself or with my, I think mostly by myself or with my younger sister. And there would be this several, you know, from whatever, like three or four, whatever time school got done to when my parents got home. TV was what filled that space. Like I would come Mm -hmm. home and I would watch TV. TV was one of my best companions growing up. It was a place I got a lot of joy. Mm -hmm. There was often a lot of shame associated with it or I definitely there was definitely yeah. a narrative that I watched too much TV or this mm-hmm. association my parents would often be very stressed about how much TV I watched yeah um, my sister and I to this day the thing we still connect about most is pop cultures so when I visit her I'm like what TV are you watching oh yeah mm-hmm. did you see this TikTok yeah. scandal or like and that is how we connect it's like such deep joy for us to yeah. talk about the media and social media and pop culture that we are in relationship to Yeah, we do the same thing. And that was me too. I would get home from school. I would make myself a peanut butter and honey sandwich. And I would go into my room. I had this little teeny tiny TV that actually my brother stole. Because it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't cable. It was just connected to like your basic channels. I was watching things like Roseanne after school, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, whatever was on like TV at that time during that few hours before my parents got home. And they started making me do shit again, right? Like, then I had to do chores and homework or whatever. Even, like, all the conflicts I had with my siblings, too. Like, we joke all the time about how much we fought over that stupid remote control. We would have to have, like, negotiations where you'd be like, okay, like, Mm -hmm. you can watch this one thing or then this that you did. Mm -hmm. Like, there was that tense negotiations and trades about, like, who got to be in charge and what show we were watching. Yeah. Yeah, or, like, getting up early. Oh, my gosh. I remember getting up early. I was a cheerleader and a dancer in high school. And over the summer, there was like a Mickey Mouse Club workout situation that happened in the morning. I remember getting up early, number one, to catch that workout. Number two, because then I had the fucking remote for the rest of the day. You know what I mean? Like whoever had it, had it. You know, once you had the power over the remote, then the negotiations could start. But at least I was the one who had it. If you're going to play, you better win. Like if you're going to, we're going to do this, like I'm going to be the best and I'm going to be the winner of the remote. So like, you got to be just... strategic. You got to be strategic. And, you know, I have three other siblings. The interesting thing too is I have a brother that's two years younger than me. I have a brother that's six years younger than me. And then my baby sister is 14 years younger than me. 
what we all wanted to watch was drastically different, right? And so that was the other thing too, is I wanted to watch Oprah. My siblings were like wanting to still watch like Animaniacs or whatever was on. I watched so much Oprah after school because it was just like whatever time I was after school and whatever time was just sort Mm -hmm. of airing seemed Mm -hmm. to often matched up. So, and then it came on every day. And so then it did a lot of post-school Oprah. I love having this conversation with you. I have a friend, um, her name is Latrice. We went to high school together. We're still really close. One thing that we used to do, two things actually. Number one, I would walk to her house and we would watch Jerry Springer. Sometimes that meant we missed our first period. Then because that's homeroom, so it's like you couldn't really get in as much trouble to skip homeroom. We would go to her house for lunch and we would make ramen, Ritz crackers on top, obviously, and hot uh, salt and pepper. I'm just giving recipes now. We would both sit there and watch Days of Our Lives. 14-year-olds watching our stories, eating ramen. That's amazing. During the day, it wasn't every day. Um, we were also ditching schools for other reasons. Obviously, there were many other things that we got into when we were not at school, but TV time was pretty important to us. She was also a big fan of David Letterman. She had like his photo in her locker, which I still think is funny. Black girl, I <laughs> opened her locker. There was a picture of David Letterman. The very first show where I was all in on was Buffy the Vampire Slayer. (laughs) I had watched the series premiere, happened to catch it live, and then Mm -hmm. was in from day one, from Mm -hmm. the very first airing. And then it was a show my mom, my sister, and I would all watch together. So we were Mm -hmm. all really committed to it. Just very into that fandom. So that was the first time I had that experience of loving something. You know, it had the version of this hyper-focused kind of obsession that brought me deep joy, that was like serving Mm -hmm. me, that brought my attention, that felt fun, that allowed me to research things and then also get joy out of the show. And that was a piece I just loved deeply my journey through that fandom. It was in high school and so it followed me through high school and into college. And then I was still Mm -hmm. in college uh, when the series ended. Yeah, I'm trying to think about like what was the first series I was into. But two things come to mind. My dad, I have this memory, even after I gave birth to my first child, I, my dad would watch Isaiah because I was still in school. And my dad would have my child in his high chair eating baked beans and like mandarin oranges, watching The Price is Right. I loved The Price is Right. I had this babysitter. Yeah. She would put on The Price is Right. That's actually maybe my very first TV memory is yeah. pretty young, maybe even in preschool, maybe like uh-huh. pre-elementary school and just watching a lot of The Price is Right. And then I just had a deep investment. Like whenever I was sick, yeah. I would get to stay home and watch The Price is Right. And I just, something about it, man, really hit for me. Yeah, I know The Price is Right. Even now, I've noticed that when I'm bored, I hum. The theme song to the price of price. It's so deep. I just realized that I was doing it. I was like, am I humming theme song to the game show? I think I am.
the first show that we watched as a family was the Cosby show. That show in our family was so significant. My bio dad was, Bill Cosby was the version of the dad he wanted to be, right? And for better or for worse, my dad modeled what his expectations of what a family was around that show. And so even now, with all of the things with Bill Cosby, because I think this is the other thing that we are going to have to talk about is the things that we love that are also fraught, right? Different than Bill Cosby for lots of different cultural and other contexts and, mm-hmm. and the kinds of harm. Joss Whedon did not stand well over the test of time as a showrunner for Buffy. And I deeply loved Buffy. Right. And like Joss Whedon did not age well into my <laughs> current life. Last year, I was going through something difficult. I was on Facebook and I noticed there were all these episodes of the Cosby's that were coming up. And I told my co-director, I was like, listen, I refuse to like any of the videos because I don't want anybody to know that I'm watching the Cosby's. There's something about that show that just brings me to this sense of comfort and this sense of innocence. It's just comforting. Bill Cosby did not age well, but it's still such a funny show. It's so funny and good in so many different ways. I was like under the covers as a CSA survivor who works in the CSA world, hiding my algorithm. I could have this connection with this show. Obviously not with Bill Cosby, but that was the other thing too, is my father, who was my perpetrator, also loved Bill Cosby. So it's so fucking weird. So weird. So many conflicting emotions about all of it. Because even as you were talking about Buffy, I never watched Buffy. I think maybe I watched a couple episodes, but I never really got into it. And I was like, oh, maybe I should watch that. But I'm like, it won't, it won't hit the same because it's happened at a different time. And anytime I try to go back and watch something that other people love at a different period of time, every time, but especially shows that are like a decade or more old, right? I, it just doesn't hit the same because it's not culturally relevant anymore. And so it feels similar in that, Shows that you watch at a certain time in your life, almost like the same as music, right? There's a song that you love and that song is a remembrance of a specific time in your life. And no matter when you listen to it, where it plays, you can instantly think about, speaking of things we shouldn't have been doing, we've had Snoop Dogg's first album, right? Like no child should have had that. There was a period where I didn't listen to Snoop for like a real long time. And then one day I was at work and it just popped into my head and I pulled it up on YouTube and started playing it. And I was like, what in the world? Because of course, as the music is playing, I'm remembering myself in my bedroom as a teenager, listening to this very explicit record. And I'm like, where were my parents? As a parent, I'm judging my parents now, but it does, it transports you. And that's the magic, but also some of that sense of discord that happens with witnessing the people who portrayed characters that you love in shows that you invested years into turning out to not be good people or turning out to be harmful people to others is is really sad. Yeah. So you were talking, it's actually one of those pop culture core memories that I think about a lot in, in the transformative justice work and just in doing work around domestic and sexual violence. Mm-hmm. But I don't talk about that much, which is, Similar to you, I had a little TV in my room that I saved up for like, maybe even like a year of allowance to get very special to me. There was a period of time we didn't have cable and there was a period of time, I was a little older, we had like basic cable. 
at like night sometimes i would find myself watching basic cable shows that i like probably shouldn't have been watching at 10 don't have totally a memory of how old i was but that probably makes sense but i have this memory of watching walker texas ranger with chuck norris i'm not no. judging by the way because i know exactly the show that you're talking about the basic shape of every episode of that show mm-hmm. is that there would be a woman who would be kidnapped, who would be under some threat of violence from men. Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. Chuck Norris would come in and save her. That's the shape of almost all the episodes. Mm -hmm. Some episode where a woman is being kidnapped for whatever reason and having her tied up constantly, like always threatening sexual violence, having this distinct memory of my kid self trying to understand and make sense of that. And for whatever reason, it just seared in my brain as reference point. The world is dangerous and there's always going to be a threat of mm-hmm. sexual violence as represented in my mind from Walker, <laughs> Texas Ranger and Chuck Norris. I think Lifetime TV was that for me. God love my parents, but Lord, seriously. My family is a military family. So we also watched a lot of those military movies, but like yeah. Full Metal Jacket, Platoon. Very violent, very scary military movies were often played at my house. I think the thing, though, Lifetime was the thing because that's what my mom watched the most. People still have this perception that a survivor story goes the same as a Lifetime movie. There's there's definitely a thing that happens. Someone jumps out of the bushes and there's sexual violence or there's domestic violence. They go to the police and they get rescued, or someone in the community rescues them, and then their life gets better, and they survive. They go to the courthouse, they win, and then they start an organization. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh, shoot, shoot, shoot. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. It's just not like that all the time, but I remember, similar to what you're saying, that very much formed my understanding of how dangerous it was to be a woman seeking a relationship with a man, right? And how dangerous it was to try to ask for help and what could happen. Like Lifetime TV was just like something that we watched all the time. Just recently hopped over there just to see what the fuck is still going going on over there, you know? I start watching this movie. Shannon, when I tell you I got to a point in this movie on Lifetime, I have to stop. But then, of course, I woke up the next day and was like, finish it there's just such ridiculousness happening over there but it was it formed the way that i thought about those things lifetime is very obsessed with movies about women locked in basements closets sheds i swear i've seen recently three or four different women locked in places by men kind of things on lifetime my entry point back in is that on tiktok they'll have the accounts that'll just show you little clips of tv shows or movies and there yeah. was one of those women locked in a basement. Probably what got me. That's exactly. probably what got me now that you mention it. And then watching like 20 minutes worth of the movie on TikTok. Why am I watching this? They've edited it down most salacious parts that I can't turn off. Can't for turn reason. away. <laughs> and I keep watching the next TikTok and I'm like, oh, that was some weird gateway drug back into Lifetime movies or something. No, that's what happened. I think that's exactly what happened to me because now that you mention it, I was watching some movie about someone who was locked in a basement. His lifetime also is very smart. They will just start the next movie. It's not like other Mm -hmm. platforms where it'll be like, this movie has ended and then it goes back to the queue. Because the other thing they're really good about is storytelling focus. If you're not locked in a basement, you're a woman who's murdering people. There's Mm -hmm. only two versions of women. 
um, uh, chained to a radiator or a black widow. But I'm not above going down a rabbit hole and watching terrible things. I want to see how it finishes. Oh my gosh, I love that. A rip from the headlines original movie. Hey, I need your help with something. Going down the basement. Dad, what is this place? Let me out! Dad! February 27th. She's went off before, right? Yes. This is different. Inspired by true events. Mom! You chose to be disrespectful, and this is your consequence. Don't you wonder what happened to her? Maybe she's dead. Everything that you get, you will. Judd Nelson. You know something. Jolie Fisher. What do you think he does down there all the time? And Stephanie Scott. Time passes really weird down here. Motherhood is the best thing that can happen to a woman. I'm gonna go outside. What do you think? I hid your sister down here? What are we calling this one? I am gonna find her myself. Dawn's my dad is also your dad. This is what happened to ungrateful little girl. Why are you doing this? Girl in the Basement premieres Saturday, February 27th at 8, only on Lifetime. What is interesting and compelling to you about talking about transformative justice in pop culture? A few years ago, I was watching The Walking Dead. And I had taken a break from watching The Walking Dead. I don't remember what season it was, but it was the end of one season where they were still in the prison. Mm-hmm. It was right before. This is kind of a spoiler. The prison was probably 10 years ago. There's this moment where it's, it's the last episode of that season. The first episode of the next season is when there's like a sickness that comes through, like a plague comes through the prison. And right as that episode is ending, it's like everyone feels safe. They've finally cleared as much of the prison as they can. They're all going to bed. And this kid gets a fever, slips and falls, dies in the shower. Episode ends. And I knew that this kid was now a zombie and these people were about to get eaten up one way or the other. And then once I heard, but the show was ending, I started watching it again. If I had wishes of my life, it would be deep dive with someone about the last season of The Walking Dead. The difference between how I watched it pre-TJ, like before I was thinking about TJ and abolition, and watching it again with this new framework was so interesting. I wonder if there are other people who see these abolitionist themes in pop culture. And then I started watching it and seeing it in other shows and pulling out propaganda and being like, oh my gosh, that's so ridiculous. This is not a thing that actually happens. Or seeing community responses to violence in movies, specifically even like horror movies. I love to talk about horror movies under the context of community-based responses to violence because usually the cops die. Yeah. People saving themselves. It's rare if ever that the cops are coming in the same day. People are smart. They're clever enough. They find their own path through. Right. And usually they end up rescuing the police, right? Like the cop then gets shot or stuck in a basement or something and they have to take it upon themselves. And now 
also rescue the law enforcement that was supposed to be responding. Kind of pivot between how I used to interact with pop culture was what made me think about it as an entry space for other people to see examples because they're already ingesting it. Like they're already taking in these shows. If we just take this little snippet, like you were saying on TikTok, here's this clip of this show. And this clip is not just a clip of community member helping another community member escape. This is actually strategy that people use in real time to respond to acts of harm and violence, but we don't necessarily identify that. I really feel like this is the way that you and I could be like, hey, look at this clip or look at this show and help explore that more with people, with one another. I mean, really the biggest thing is that I like talking about TV. I love talking about TJ. The two things together, that's what I want to do. What about you? I mean, very much the same. Conversation I've been having a lot lately is this piece around it's going to take a lot of us to move how we're going to need to move. I'm talking a lot about the same 1,000 people who understand transformative justice, care about it, are deep in. And that's great. 1,000 people is great. And we're actually going to need a massive societal and cultural change and changing of these conditions to get where we need to go. And that's going to take more than 1,000 of us. We're going to have to widen. We're going to have to open up the door bigger. We're going to have to figure out points of engagement that aren't just speaking to the same group of people who are deeply invested in these questions of the harms of criminalization and Mm -hmm. community-based responses. It's so great to get to incubate and to think about with that crew of folks about what our strategies are. I actually need a lot of people. And Mm -hmm. very few people in my day-to-day life are the people who deeply are talking about transformative justice. Mm -hmm. Most of the people in my life are doing a range of things, right? So Mm -hmm. I actually need to be able to connect with folks at my dance studio. You know, I just had the situation where my longtime beloved dance studio collapsed for lots of reasons, including race and racism stuff that was happening, including Mm -hmm. a whole range of things. Having a community that was skilled up for how to think about how do we be in a relationship with each other through conflict, through, you know, structural Mm -hmm. oppression issues, that was necessary. Almost no one there was was like, what's transformative justice? But are people who care deeply about being in relationship with each other And so I need that. I need a lot of people Mm -hmm. to be invested about these questions, understanding Mm -hmm. the harms that exist in the world and our society, and then also like how we care for each other. I do believe deeply that it needs to be compelling and exciting and fun. TV is fun. Pop culture is pop culture because it is consumed by millions and millions of people. So it's actually Mm -hmm. a thing that lots of folks are interested in. And we just can't Mm -hmm. be too cool to be curious about the things that millions of people are compelled by. To be too cool for something that a lot of people are interested in just seems silly to me. And so I'm curious Mm -hmm. about the things people like. I'm curious about things that people consume. I have watched every episode of Keeping Up with the Kardashians and now Mm -hmm. the new Kardashians reboot. I have a complex relationship with the Kardashians. It's a little Mm -hmm. bit like my other reality television where it's hard to say I love it. Oh, yeah, I'm like co-signing the thing. But I definitely can't look away. I have definitely spent probably over a hundred hours of my life watching things Mm -hmm. about the Kardashians. And what I say to people all the time who critique the Kardashians is usually they critique the Kardashians where like they're dumb. Here's the thing. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of things to critique the Kardashians about. Their relationship to money and class and their Mm -hmm. perpetuation of Mm anti-Blackness. 
great reasons to mm-hmm. have critiques of Kardashians. Mm-hmm. That they're stupid is not one of them. They're mm-hmm. actually not stupid. There's multiple very successful businesses. They're strategic. They're doing mm-hmm. stuff on purpose. They're very successful. That's mm-hmm. a sexist reason to critique them. And that's like, ugh, I'm so bored by your bad critique. <laughs> 100%. There was like a, a meme circulating for a minute. And I can't remember who, oh, you know who it was? Malala. Malala Yousafzai. It was a Kardashian. I think it was him and Malala Yousafzai that were juxtaposed together. Mm-hmm. And there was this thing that was like Jezebel or the saint and the sinner kind of uh-huh. thing where they put them together and they were like, basically, don't be Kim, be Malala. That was my thing too. I was like, listen, I understand that maybe there are things about the Kardashians that I would not want children to emulate. Got it. 100%. However, framing it as if this is one type of woman to be, and this is a woman not to be, is misogyny in practice. To your point, you can dislike the Kardashians as much as you want to, but I've never seen someone spin what they've spun into that much wealth in a short period of time. Over and over and over again across what 10 family members and the very successful businesses that they're running. Mm -hmm. Skims is a very successful business. Kylie's cosmetic, she's a young billionaire because she made very popular and well-known makeup brand. Good American. Many people I know have good American genes from Chloe. There is a thing that they are doing that is working. And that mm-hmm. is just a thing to be curious about. Right. We don't have to celebrate it. We don't have to be like, ooh, yes, billionaires. We love them because that's not it either. However, we're not going to say that they're stupid. And we're not going to say that other people that are able to create wealth in entrepreneurial ways should not be like them in some ways, because that is really minimizing. It's minimizing what they have been able to do, but it's also minimizing our range of possibilities in terms of surviving this capitalist hellhole that we're living in. Because we all have to survive. My relationship to wealth, it is, I'm not a capitalist, but I do crush a lot. Because if I have money, I can redistribute it, people. We do want to eat the rich. But like we wouldn't want to eat the rich if we had other things to eat. If people were redistributing the wealth in these creative ways, by building businesses, we could look a little bit different as a community. And I, you know, diversity of strategies diversity of ideas and maintaining our values. I think those things are still possible. Jordan had the picture with Chloe's baby daddy. And then that all publicly blew up. Mm, and then mm-hmm. the uh, Pinkett Smith's family on like Red, Ta- mm. Red Table Talk like had Jordan come on. That was mm-hmm. one of the most beautiful representations I have ever seen in public of talking about accountability in a loving and nuanced mm-hmm. way. And the way that Jada talked to Jordan about, hey, we love you. People mm-hmm. should not be coming for you in this way. 
And hey, what role do you think you had? What business did you have sitting on the lap of your family friend's husband at three in the morning? I really hear you, believe you. No one should come for you. We will protect you. And it's good to think about what your part is. The whole 30 minutes or first 30 minutes is just like how the family has her, how we like, we love Jordan. We've got her. Towards the end, she's just like, and I just want you to be curious about how, what the context was that you put yourself there and like what your part in her role was. And it was just such a beautiful public conversation around the nuances of accountability. That is what's possible for me through all this pop culture stuff. It's less of like, do we love or hate the Kardashians? But actually lots of people are have their eyes on complex situations and actually really beautiful things can come out of that. And that's what I love. Yeah. And I love the Red Table Talks. I don't watch all of them, but I've seen several of them and I'm just so impressed. And I know that people have the same, like mixed reviews about Jada Pinkett Smith around their families and how they move. But I really enjoyed watching the way that they move. I don't even know where we begin. Well, I'm going to start with, I have known Jordan Woods for her entire life. And I just want everybody to know that anybody that's coming to the table today needs to understand that A, we're dealing with a really sensitive subject and we need to deal with it with compassion. And anybody who wants to come to the table and act like they haven't done something in their life that they wish they could have done different. If you feel as though you don't have any skeletons in your closet, if you feel holier than thou, this might not be the place for you and that's okay. But I've been here several times and the best way to deal with this kind of stuff is just to come clean. The first thing that I want to make sure you and I have clarity about is that there's a family that feels betrayed by you. And you're clear about that, right? Okay. I want to give you the opportunity to tell your truth but I want you to tell it through the lens of what your part has been. Because that's the only part you can change. Mm -hmm. And that's the only part that you can be responsible for, heal from, and make amends. So, let's start with what happened. I also accidentally fell down a rabbit hole of the Left Behind movies. Those are ones I don't know. I take all TV and movie recommendations. So if anyone's even passingly like they think that I should watch it, I'm like, sounds good. I'm in. There's so many things we can get into in my Christian upbringing that I no longer belong to. That these movies were like a big deal for a period of time. There's an earlier one that was made in like the 60s and 70s that none of my friends knew about. They obviously weren't raised in the Bible Belt uh, and during satanic panic, so they were busy doing other things. Well, I was thinking my whole family is going to disappear in the middle of the night because of Jesus. One night I was just sitting up and I was like, what was happening with those left behind movies? And then I found out. I watched many of them and I have a lot to say about why evangelical Christians are the way that they are politically. 
from revisiting old media with a new framework, I'm like, oh my, I get it now as a means to understand the ways that people make choices so that we can have a conversation about where those things, like the understanding of where those things come from, rather than just being like, that's stupid, you're dumb, your religion is this, that, and the other thing. All of those things are true, can be true, yes. And also, that doesn't change that people in that community have been raised from birth to believe that these things are true about the way that they interact with themselves, with their relationships around them, with the world around them. And I just got super jazzed about it. I think we're just both going to have to give each other homework in between because I'm like, I accept all pop culture homework. I don't know if you're going to make it through the left behind, but you are welcome to try. The first one which is the Kirk Cameron version. It's the first movie. And that one was basically produced by a Christian production company. But then they did a theatrical release with, uh, what's his face? Nicholas Cage. And there's also one for teens. That's what you need to know. Those are the ones that I watch. I really cannot wait to hear what you think about them. Amazing. To support Propaganda, please like, subscribe, and leave a five-star review. It really makes a difference. This episode of Propaganda is brought to you by Accountable Communities Consortium, supporting people, organizations, and communities to be in right relationship with each other.